Ruby Love is my great niece. She goes to the day school down on the first floor of the education building here. And I'm on the third floor along with her dad, Andrew, who is my nephew. And he works for us and for Crossroads NOLA. And Ruby got in trouble this week. I think it was Monday. Her teacher was upset at her. She wasn't behaving. And the teacher said to her, Ruby, do you want me to go get your father? To which Ruby replied, no, Uncle David. <laughs> this is the reputation I want. <laughs> the great pushover. Graham, 20 months old, but he gives the sweetest hugs, and everybody in the nursery will tell you, right? That boy gives sweet hugs. He just holds on. He's wonderfully affectionate. I know in 10 or 20 years he's not going to hug me so tightly, but I'm sure enjoying it now. And I love the kids. We have been motivated by ministry to children through all these years. In 1991, the church started a kids club in the Florida housing community and that morphed into building 91 homes in partnership with Habitat for these children who lived in such desperate circumstances in housing that you cannot imagine and when we saw that we said God help us do something and we were told the key thing in lifting a family out of poverty is home ownership not only in this generation, but generations to come. So we are praying that for 91 families, generational poverty at least is beginning to break as they now live in a clean, safe home. And that morphed into Crossroads NOLA, which is our ministry to foster kids. You know, we have a new uh, baby in the Sandifer family, Micah J has been adopted this week. And that's wonderful celebration right there. So it's terrific. We have seven foster families in our community of faith. We have them in all aspects of our work. We don't point them out. We're not supposed to do that. But uh, we are celebrating that ministry to children that is so important to us as a community and as a community of faith. I want you to think about children as you come to chapter 2 of Esther today. I want you to think about these virgins, these young women that the text talks about in terms of being, in many cases, minor children. I don't know how old Esther was, probably still a teenager we would expect or anticipate, maybe not, but we don't. We don't know, but there's good reason to expect that there are teenagers involved, minor children involved in this. We would call them minor children. In that culture, it was usual to marry at a very young age, but we're not going to endorse everything about the Persian Empire and its culture. I'm not going to. I don't believe God does. We are people who stand on the Word. We are people of the book. We believe that God's Word endures forever. And we're going to come to this passage with the Word of God planted in our heart and hopefully the perspective of God in our mind and spirit as we look at what happens here in the second chapter of the book of Esther. You'll remember that in the first chapter, 
King Xerxes, who is king of the Persian Empire, calls Esther to come in front of his drunken friends so he can show them her beauty, and she says no. An international crisis is declared by the counselors, and nothing will do but to forbid Vashti from ever again coming into the presence of the king. I'm talking about Vashti, his queen. And she's never again to come in. So we pick up here in chapter 2. Some people think that there's been an intervening military campaign between chapters 1 and 2. We don't really know. It's not here in Esther. But we know that Xerxes did fight the Greeks in that famous uh, battle at Thermopylae where the 300 Spartans held off the uh, Persian army. And the Persians lost in this effort to claim Greece as part of the empire. So some people think that's what's intervened here and that the great celebration of the first chapter was an effort by King Xerxes to demonstrate he had the financial capability to fund a military campaign to take over Greece. An effort for the second time, an effort which failed. So maybe that explains his downcast spirit as we enter chapter 2. Maybe he's lonely because he's a guy that just lost a big war. Verse two, verse, or chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hagar, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai has a, had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. 
verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Anger subsides, but its circumstances do not. The king's no longer angry. He was angry enough that he threw out his queen Vashti, forbidding her ever to come into his presence again. He was angry enough that he made it a royal edict and decree that could not be broken. But he had a relationship with Vashti. We don't know how deep it might have been, but it was different than the rest of the harem. He had all the other girls in his harem, but he was thinking about Vashti, thinking about the banquet that he gave, the decree that he issued, and that she was gone. Some people read this and say, the king may have been contemplating bringing her back, even against the decree that could not be broken. Maybe he was that lonely, regretting the decision he'd made in anger. I know there are many a spouse who regrets words spoken in anger. Many a husband who wished he could call back those words. Maybe there are folks in this room who wish they could rewind history and go back to a moment of decision when you were furious and you said something and you did something. And if you had your druthers, you'd want it to be the way it used to be. But there's no path back. And all you can do is say to yourself, God, when I am angry, Give me the wisdom and patience to bite my tongue and control myself until the anger subsides and I can make a decision that I really want to live with the rest of my life. We don't get to withdraw words not even the king could do that. 
So the king's edict goes out, and the counselors notice that he is longing for his queen, and they intervene. His personal assistants offer up suggestions. Maybe they're afraid he's about to rewind things, and Vashti has a political power that we're not informed about. We don't know. History says this could be the case. And they don't want her back in the palace. And so they come up with this plan that is totally depraved no matter what generation you live in or culture you live in. We don't give King Xerxes a pass because he's a Persian king 2,500 years ago. The Word of God says God made them male and female. The Word of God says he brought the woman to the man and the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. For this reason a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh when Jesus is asked about the relationship between a man and a woman and divorce and, and marriage in his own ministry, he says, from the beginning, from the beginning, God's ideal was a man and woman living together for a lifetime. That doesn't get suspended because you're 2,500 years ago or you're in a culture that does other things or you're the king of an empire. There is something about this suggestion that is truly depraved. King, we need another department of government. Let's expand the government. How much will that cost? It's irrelevant. Look, we need... Folks over every province who will have beauty contests and look for all the most beautiful girls in this wide, far-flung empire, and they'll bring them to you, and you can check them out one after the other after the other until you find one that suits you, and she can be the new queen. See, people are taken in this plan. People are taken where they do not want to go. I was walking down the emergency room hallway last night after somebody had an emergency, an older person. And I was thinking as I walked down that hall, that person would probably rather be anywhere than here. Jesus looked at Peter, and he said to Peter, when you're young, you get dressed the way you want, you go you wanna, where you want to go. He said, but when you're old, they're going to pick you up and take you where you do not want to go. See, people are taken. People end up where they don't want to go. It's a pretty common experience. Has it ever happened to you? Maybe you're in a place where you don't want to go. Wouldn't be that unusual for you to be saying inside of yourself, I'm only here because, 
He said we had to come. She said we had to come. I'm only here because I'd rather be somewhere else. The scripture says that Esther and Mordecai were only in Persia because King Nebuchadnezzar overthrew Jerusalem and he took their forefathers hostage and he brought them back to Babylon and other parts of the empire, displaced people. That's who they are. It was part of the way they broke the back of indigenous peoples. When they conquered the area, they just scooped them all up and took them somewhere else. They're really refugees is what they are. Do you know the world has 16 million refugees today? There are 32,000 people today, today and every day of the year who flee their homes seeking safety and refuge in another country. 16 million of them, not in their own country, but in another country. In other words, 32,000 people every day who knock on somebody's door and say, will you let me in? Of the 16 million, fully half of them are minor children. That means there are 8 million children refugees in the world. You know, the country that hosts the largest number of refugees is Pakistan. Most of them are Afghan. Refugees from Afghanistan. Did you see the picture on the, on the front of the Wall Street Journal of the two Kurdish boys? Looked like they were sitting by a fire outside in Turkey, having fled the violence and trouble and war going on in their homeland. When you hear about refugees, I want you to think about the fact that half of them are children in the world and that God loves every one of them as much as he loves you. He knows their face. He knows their name. He knows the hairs on their head. He knows their fingerprint. And Jesus is saying to the children, come to me. Do not refuse them. You let the children come to me. For of such is the kingdom of God. We are in a world that we want to change. We just got through singing. Lord, help us change this world through the power of your name. What does that mean? That we live in the world, in the character, in the person of Jesus Christ, that our words and our deeds, our attitudes and our arguments are consistent with the name of Jesus. So that if Jesus were standing right there, he would say amen and amen to the things that tumble out of our mouths, the attitudes that we hold the positions that we hold. And Esther and Mordecai have been taken to a place they didn't want to be. And the scripture says that Esther was taken. Twice it says, Esther was taken to the palace and then Esther was taken. It came her turn. 
I don't know what that feels like to a young virgin, but it came her turn, and she was taken to the king. The scripture never says that Mordecai was jumping up and down saying, hey, here's a pretty young woman. Make her part of your harem, King Xerxes. Never says that. It never says that Esther was campaigning, that she entered the contest, the beauty contest, that she wanted to be there. She had no choice. It's not up to her. Mordecai has no choice. Esther will be taken into the harem. She will take her turn with this king, Xerxes. It's going to happen. She has no choice. We have laws on the immigration books that are different for people coming from Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. You know why? Because so many of those minor children are trafficked as sex objects in the United States. That's why the laws are there. That's why it's different if they come from those countries. Mexico, not the same thing. Central America, they are trafficked. King Xerxes is doing something that is ungodly. It's unscriptural. It's not the way God planned it. He doesn't get a pass. People are taken where they do not want to go. And people hide their true identity. See, Mordecai knows Persia is not a safe place for his adopted daughter or himself. So he says to her, now don't you tell where you came from, your nationality or your family story. Don't you tell it. See, when you're, when you're trafficking young girls and boys for sex, you don't want to know their story. You don't want to know their name. If you call them up on a website and look at a video or a picture, you don't want to hear where they're from. You don't want to know who they are. They could be your daughter. They could be your granddaughter. If you start to learn your, their story, you might start feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart about what you're doing. The king doesn't want to know his sto her story, nor any of the stories of these virgins who come before him. People hide their true identity. Some people come into church hoping they won't be discovered, that nobody will know. They go to work thinking, I hope these folks don't find out who I really am. They hang out with their school buddies thinking, man, I hope these folks don't find out who I really am. I don't want them to know. We live in a world with masks and facades 
You know, I got a letter from the IRS yesterday. I hope that's okay. But it always troubles me when I hear from the IRS. But back when I tried to file my taxes, I couldn't. Somebody had filed under my Social Security number. Took me five months to get my refund. I called him and called him. I was on hold for over an hour. But I finally got it, and they sent me the letter yesterday, and they confirmed my identity was stolen. Somebody stole my identity. I am not happy about it. Some people make up an identity. Their persona, who they are. They wear a mask with friends and family. And if anybody says how you're doing, they say just fine, even if they're dying inside. They don't want anybody to know the heartache they've experienced or the trouble they're in, the journey that they're making, and the sorrow that is theirs. They don't want to tell people. They don't want them to know. I think it's sad that oftentimes in the church of Jesus Christ, we sit with brothers and sisters who know Jesus as Savior, and the last thing we want them to know is who we really are. Our prayer requests are about the outside stuff. Jesus invites you into a relationship with the Father that requires your transparency. You have to come to God just as I am. Just as I am God, here I am. You have to open up your chest and let him see the real you, the inner you, the person that you are. That's what confession is all about, you being honest with God. And the transformation that comes in trusting Jesus as Savior is through that transparent relationship that we have with God where we say, God, this is me. I've no, never told anybody this stuff, God, but I'm telling you. I want you to know the real me, the true me. And when we open up to God and we let him know everything that's in us and we come just like we are, that's when we discover his amazing grace. <laughs> amazing grace. Amazing grace that does not require you to wear a mask in the throne room. You don't have to hide your identity when you go before the King of Kings. You can be who you are. You can let him know what's really inside of you. And that's when you discover how much he really, really loves you. More than you ever knew. He loves you. He loves you with all the warts and problems and difficulties, all the heartache, all the sin, all the trouble. He loves you. The amazing love of God is demonstrated for you in this, that Christ died for you when you were still a sinner.
coming to God just like you are, not hiding your identity. It's the beginning of a transformation where you can live and operate in grace. And once you come real with God, you face the darkness of your own heart, the difficulty of your own past, the decisions you've made that you regret. Once you you face those things and really let God know who you are, the grace pours in. And you are enabled in this transformation to let other people know who you are and to let them be who they are in your presence. You know that you are in the presence of grace when you can be honest without fear. There is a level of trust in the presence of God. There is a level of love. There is a level of peace. And you come to God knowing it's there. And after you've come to God and you mess up, you know I don't have to mask this. I don't have to hide this. I don't have to put this problem in my back pocket when I come before God. I come like I am, I'm honest with him, and his grace is greater than all my sin. Don't hide who you really are. If you hide who you really are, you'll be tempted to self-righteousness, to make up your own righteousness, to justify yourself, to say you're as good as other people, to get out the measuring rod and compare yourself morally with other people. Wrong answer. If you're honest with God, you can receive his grace and then you can give it. And that's empowered living. That's transformed living. That's being honest and transparent. That's living in a world where, it, where, the, where you're not expected to be genuine and authentic. Where it's a surprise when you run into it. What a great witness to the grace of God in your life for you to be an authentic, genuine person, connecting to other people in transparency, learning to love each other, even though there's trouble. Esther, don't say who you are. See, the Jews were physically similar to other races so that in Greece or Romania or even Germany or Russia they could blend right in you couldn't identify Esther just by looking at her that she was a Jew but the Jews stubbornly refuse to assimilate wherever they go They are a covenant people and they know it. And their cultural and religious and ethnic identity is so deep, they want to preserve it. And they preserve it in family connections and community connections so that if 12 12 families of Jews showed up in Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi or Smyrna, they'd get together and they'd form a synagogue. Synagogues rose out of this diaspora, this exile of the Jewish people. 
And Mordecai knew it was coming. That the hammer was going to come down. And we're going to see it in coming chapters. What happens to the Jews in the Persian Empire while Esther is on the throne as queen. We will see why God brought her to the kingdom for such a time as this. But in the meantime, parent Mordecai is pacing like parents do. The scripture says that Mordecai went to the harem and he paced outside the harem. I don't know what I'd do if my daughter was in there. What would you do? You had no choice. It just happened. They picked her. She was taken, taken to the palace, now taken to the king. What do you do? You just pace. He's worried sick. He's wondering what he can do, what's happening to her. He is anxious about his adopted daughter. And parents get that way. Friends, parents worry about their kids. There are parents in this room today that are worried about children that have gone out to college or gone on to a lifestyle that they cannot control and they can't change their decision. They're 18 and they're out of the house. Parents and grandparents, we, we pace the floor just like Mordecai and have the ones we love upon our hearts. Sometimes it's our own parents, the elderly, for whom we pace and we worry about them. You say, what do I do? What do you do when you're out of control, when your, your child is in this kind of situation like Esther? What do you do? You give her to God. You give her to God. You raise them in an effort to ignite the flame of sincere devotion to God in their heart. You hope that they catch this. You can't really teach this. They got to catch it. It's something that they catch as they watch you when you pray, as you care for each other in the moment of worship. It's something that is caught, this living flame of devotion to God. You can teach the externals, the practices, the disciplines, but you want them to catch the flame that stays with them, a love, love for God, love for Christ that will burn brightly in them if they are in the harem or in the bedchamber of the king, that it will still be there wherever the currents of life take them. And when they are where you cannot be, you entrust them to God and there are parents and grandparents in the room today. Your act of worship today is to say to God, God, I've been so worried. I've been pacing the floor. And today, again, I surrender my loved one to you. Here's my daughter. Here's my son. Here's that grandchild that I love. Here's these elderly parents for whom I've become a parent to them and I'm giving them to you, God. I'm surrendering that you are the one I do not control. I am out of control. This is beyond my control. I am entrusting them to you. 
this is an act of faith it is an act of worship and it is an act that transforms my attitude in this moment and blesses the one that I love to say Lord she is yours he is yours I know you love them more than I ever could what do I do with Esther I entrust her to God bow with me please do you have an Esther in your life a daughter a son a grandchild who's wandered off in a different place and you're worried about them would you speak their name to the father you got a friend that you care for an elderly person who's at a point where they need somebody else to care for them speak their name to God Father, you hear the chorus of names that we lift up to you. Like Mordecai with Esther, we say to you, God, they are yours. We knew that when they were born, they were gifts from you. And so today we entrust them to you again, our daughters and our sons, the people that we love most in the world. We entrust them to you, God. We do so with great faith, great hope, and understanding that you are God, that you hold the universe in your hands, that you can work in their lives in ways we could never predict or could not even see, that you can place people in their lives to minister to them in their hurt and their need, and God, that you can use them in difficult places for your own glory. So Lord, we give them to you, these people that we love, holding them up, holding them forth, trusting you. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you that your grace is greater than our failures, the darkness in our heart, Thank you that we can be real, transparent with you. Lord, even thank you that your vision penetrates all the layers of our disguise and you see us completely as we are. It's a comfort, God, to know that's true. By your Holy Spirit, minister to our need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To come under the name of Jesus is to say in this moment in my life, I am his, I am trusting him. I'm receiving it into my life. I want to be his. I want to publicly identify with the Savior. To trust in the name of Jesus today may be for you to come saying, I am giving my life to Christ. Or having done that, I'm going to identify with him in baptism. I am going to identify with his church in this community. I'm going to be part of the committed family of faith. That's, that's the call. That's the need.
So whatever your response, would you make it to God? Our prayer counselors are ready to pray with you. If you've got a son or daughter who's on your heart today and you're pacing the floor, we'll pray with you. We want to. Let's stand together. This altar's open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's bring our need to God. You choose the humble and raise the high. You choose the weak and make them strong. You heal our brokenness inside. Give us life to save love to set the captives free. Would you bow with me, please, for just a moment? Maybe God spoke to your heart about a need to be real, to be authentic, transparent. Maybe you've been hiding your true identity. And maybe you need to talk to someone this week about it, about what's really going on in your life. I'd urge you to call us, to call me, one of our ministers. Just say, I want to talk to you. Maybe you've got a son or daughter that we can pray with you about. God, we pray that you would strengthen us in the inner man, that we would be able to surrender the cover-up, the facade unto you, as well as the ones we love and worry about. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.